Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I chat with the super talented author, Okechuku Nzolo. His fantastic debut novel, The Private Joys of Nena Maloney, has it all. Humor, tenderness, beautiful relationships, and characters that you'll remember long after reading the last line. And even though it's been many years since I was a teenager, I instantly connected with Nena, a 16-year-old girl growing up in Manchester. Nena has so much grit as she navigates the ups and downs of womanhood alongside her mom, Joni. The relationship is certainly very special, but Nena's curiosity to learn more about her father, Morris, who Joni refuses to discuss, is tested, particularly as Nena learns more about her father and his Nigerian culture. I absolutely loved The Private Joys of Nena Maloney and had so much fun chatting with Oke Chuku about teenager anxiety, the powerful dynamics between all the characters in the book, and why we tend to believe the doubts in our heads, especially when they are confirmed by those we love most. It's no surprise that Oke Chuku's debut has been recommended by The Eye Paper, The Guardian, Metro, and many others. Oh, and also by beloved authors such as Candice Cardi-Williams, Andrew McMillan, and Bernadine Avaristo. I really hope you love this episode. I am very excited because it is officially October and October is one of my favorite months because it's autumn and it also means that there are some fantastic books that are coming out this month and I am so excited because I am here chatting with one of those authors who has a fantastic debut coming out is the one and only Okechuku Nzolo. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. Yay, I'm so excited. And we're both up north and it's raining yeah. and we're having a great yeah. time, aren't we? Such a great time. I, I wish it was raining more. It's fantastic. <laughs> but honestly, I bet that even though the weather is miserable outside, that it's just sunshine and blue skies for you because your book comes out this week. I mean, just honestly, tell me how you're feeling. I feel like I'm walking on clouds. You know, it's it's like a dream. The only way I can describe it is it's like a dream. I've been... You know, I've been working on this for such a long time and, you know, for most of that time I wasn't sure if I was going to find a publisher or anything like that and now I found the best publisher I could possibly ask for and everything is going so well and I'm having all these amazing experiences like I'm, I've been into a bookshop and seen my book on the shelves. It's just, it's indescribably wonderful. It's It's fantastic. Oh, it's just so dreamy. I love it. And your enthusiasm just makes me so excited to talk about your book and to be here and to like shout about how great it is. And I mean, honestly, I couldn't agree more with you about the awesome publisher that you have, Dialogue Books, the whole team there. They are just phenomenal. I love all of Mm. the authors that come from that family, yourself included. And I'm just really excited to talk about your fantastic debut. It comes out, like I said, this week on the 3rd of October. And I know Mm. everyone will absolutely love it. I was privileged enough to get an advanced copy so I've been sitting on this for a couple of months now about how much I like it. Could you just tell the listeners what your debut is about? So The Private Joys of Nana Maloney is comedy about a teenage girl called Nena who is half Nigerian and she lives with her white mum Joni in Manchester in the present day. And the two of them have a lovely, tender relationship full of love and humour. But because Nana's never met her father and because her mother won't explain why and won't talk about it, it causes strain between the two of them. And so as Nana starts to explore her Igbo-Nigerian culture, it pushes the two of them apart in that there's lots of questions being unanswered 
and their relationship becomes strained. And it's really a novel about sort of redemption and learning about yourself and coming of age, not just as a teenager, but later on in your life as well. And there's just a bunch of characters around them who are finding themselves and losing themselves in various different ways as well. I know that there are so many people and so many readers that absolutely could have benefited from your book, you know, when they were going through the teenage years, because it is scary. And it's such a pivotal time, but it's also such a confusing time as well. And I think that was that was what was really great about your book is that, you know, Nenya is going through so much in terms mm. of there's a lot on her plate. There's a lot on her shoulders. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Everyone has been a teenager and everyone can relate. And, and I think what's really interesting, what really struck me about your book is the title is Private Joys. Yeah. Why did you pick Private Joys? How did you come up with that title? Why Private Joys? So I wanted to get a sense of the whimsy and the humour that sort of characterised the book because the book is so, you know, there are some dark themes in there, there's some heavy stuff, but at the same time, what I was trying to do with the book is to approach that with a lightness of tone and a lightness of touch and and this idea that redemption is possible and that there is, I didn't want this to be a book that felt dark. I wanted it to be a book that felt enjoyable and warm. And so that's where the sort of the joyous part of it came from. And at the same time, I think there are characters in this book who feel isolated, either because their relationships in their life are breaking down or because they're struggling to communicate. And I wanted to get a sense of the loneliness, I think, that it, that kind of is that sort of growing up process, as well as the joys that come when you have, you have your little wins and your little successes and things start to move in the right direction. So, yeah, I really wanted to get a sense of the lights and shade of the characters' lives. Yeah, and it's interesting as well, because from the start, you are in the minds and essentially alongside the lives of these characters. And what I think is really interesting, the themes that are woven throughout this book are so important and it's so important to have them in literature today because I feel like there's sometimes instances when you're a teenager and you feel like you have to internalize everything and you're not allowed mm. to speak up about things. And yeah. you're not allowed to ask questions because people are older than you. So you feel like you're just supposed to kind of do that. But at the same time as well, you also feel like you have to adapt and adopt the beliefs and the opinions of your parents. And we were not raised, well, at least I certainly wasn't raised to, to question that. But at the same yeah. time, she is very much struggling in terms of she has her path that she knows is right for her but then at the same time I feel like she didn't want to be disloyal to the life that her mother and her had built which is I think really interesting and the thing of it is is what's great about your book is you don't have to choose you can have yeah. both and and I think that's what was really lovely about what came through in your book and I really enjoyed that part Did you find when you were writing the book that you explored a lot of kind of ups and downs that you kind of went through as a teen and then thought, you know what, I think I'm going to kind of explore how that would be from a female perspective as opposed from a male perspective. I think I definitely did explore a lot of stuff that I went through. Like Nena, I was really, I worried a lot, a lot when I was Nena's age. And um, one of the, interestingly, one of the most fun parts about writing this was writing Nena's sort of anxiety sort of daydreams when she panics and she catastrophizes about things going wrong and she's and it's all like me I guess as well again Nena has a very uh, powerful and large imaginary world I guess you have to as a writer to do that to be able to, to sort of to to come up with something that th that's this long um, you have to have quite a big imaginary world um, 
and so yeah that was kind of a fun way I guess of revisiting that and, pr- and processing that and thinking about it but then a, a lot of the stuff that Nena experiences was stuff that I never experienced and that was also really interesting because Nena's mother Joni her relationship with her mother is very different from my relationship with mine Nena's mother was born in the same country as her you know she has a lot of cultural references that the two of them share whereas my mother is Nigerian like my father and they were born over there and then immigrated so it was really interesting to kind of to consider the differences culturally that you know if your parents are from a different place from where you come from how that affects your relationship and the kind of the the conversations that you might have the kind of the expectations that they might have in terms of to, to a certain extent every parent has a kind of a template I guess that they mm. wonder whether their child will fit into later in life and then his father in one of the flashbacks Morris he talks about how then he talks about the Nigerian dream, which is like the American dream, except you must become a doctor and that is it. Like, and um, I just I, I just find that really funny and how and I wanted to explore with Nena that kind of, you know, OK, yes, yeah, she has a Nigerian father. But if she never meets him, what does that mean in terms of, yeah. you know, how quote Nigerian that she is? Um, and I was just really interested to explore that relationship between the two of them but as to the sort of the female perspective that's a really interesting question because there was never any point where I thought I want this to be a story about two women and I think maybe that's a good thing I I, I was always terrified of writing because you know what it's like there are some male writers who just can't write convincing women and I think that's so bad because women aren't sort of like aliens that you like have to like research in a library like you've heard it here folks we are not aliens (laughs) (laughs) right do you know what I mean though like uh, people some people with the best of intentions have said to me like oh my goodness so you're writing about women like where did you do your research and I'm like you shouldn't have to do research like they're just people and I think I'm very interested in how other people's lives work and that was probably what was behind that really Yeah, that's interesting. And who hasn't met or has multiple women who, you know, make them feel great and empowered and things. So you don't have to go too far to try and do your research on, you know, empowering (laughs) women. I'm all for that. I think also the curiosity that she has and the passion, which is currently, especially at the beginning, it's more kind of at a lower flame, so to speak, in terms of she's not quite sure what she's going to find when she Mm. goes on her search. And I found that Mm. extremely exciting in terms of it wasn't predictable. It wasn't kind of, okay, I'm just going to connect those dots and I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen. You really did turn the page and turn the page and turn the page and you're like, oh my gosh, wow, I didn't expect that at all, which is so surprising and so lovely. And like I said, I really enjoyed the fact that there were flashbacks and that very much added to the richness of the culture side of things. When you looked at doing kind of past flashbacks and then when you kind of brought us back to the present, were you surprised by anything when you did that, when you're kind of taking us on that journey, when you were writing, did anything particularly surprise you as you were kind of doing that flashback versus present time? That's such a good question. I think, yeah, the biggest surprises for me was how much I enjoyed writing the love story between Nana's parents. You know, I redrafted this novel so many times when I, before I even submitted it to a publisher. And that was one of the big surprises for me because I just thought, I love this. I really love writing this story. And I love that that I can write these conversations between these two people who obviously have a really strong connection, who get to each other in quite an important way, but also like anybody, you know, like any two people, they don't know each other completely and they don't always understand where each other are coming from and they have their little, they have the things that they clash on and they have things that don't make sense to each other because they've come from a different culture or because 
they they want different things from life or they believe in different things from life and i really enjoyed bringing these two people from very opposite perspectives together you know morris nella's father is very religious he comes from a really religious family and his faith is really important to him mm-hmm. whereas joni god is you know she she's she's read bits of the bible but that's only because she really likes to read essentially for her religious faith is a kind of a, a curiosity it's um it's a thing to be it's an idea it's not a something that fills her with any kind of energy or importance it's for her it's something to be sort of toyed with as an idea mm-hmm. and love the idea of the two of them coming together and encountering each other's perspectives and i loved writing the conversations between the two of them i love that kind of spark when i was growing up i loved reading things like jane austen where you could tell instantly right um, <laughs> <laughs> i did a little i did a little like fist bump <laughs> i'm so glad um and yeah and i just yeah i love the way that the characters you know if you think about something like emma and where she and mr knightley talk even though um they're not they don't at first understand each other very well or yeah. out in prejudice where you have a similar sort of thing going on but you can tell that the two of them are well matched because of the quality of the conversation that mm. they have. No, I even agree. if it's an argument or even if even if they don't see eye to eye. And I really liked doing, I guess, my own sort of take on that with these two characters yeah. and thinking, okay, so these two get together, what next? Yeah, and from the start, which I'll get onto in a minute, because at the beginning of the book, we are in that flashback scene and then we go to the present after that. And what I really liked about Joni and Maurice is the fact that, like you said, they kind of were a match for each other in terms of, there was no lull in between the conversation because they both brought so much intelligence and so much interesting things to say to the conversation. They were a match for each other, so to speak, in, ter- in terms of intelligence and, and everything. But also as well, and we'll get onto this a little bit later, <laughs> I hope I'm not giving too much away at the beginning, but <laughs> I, I really liked how they stood their ground in terms of this is this is what I stand for, this is what I believe in, and mm. I really hope that you'll come along for the ride with me, but I'm not going to back down in terms of I'm not going to more or less have you influence the way I, I think about these things because this is what I know. This is what I love. I mean, when it comes to Maurice, he is very passionate. He's very pious. He's very into religion, as you say. And mm-hmm. at the beginning of the book, he's with his group where they are deciding on Bible verses. And I learned so much because I haven't, ugh, bad admission, picked <laughs> up a Bible in a very long time. And <laughs> going back to that part of you, because it's very mm-hmm. spiritual, it's very personal. And yeah. not everybody necessarily signs on to religion right away. And it is something yeah. it is something that people do get a bit nervous about because are you going to offend somebody? But at the same time, Maurice is not necessarily trying to sway you or trying to change the way you think of things. He's just like, this is where I come from. This is what I believe. Exactly. And I thought that was really respectful and really great in terms of he's not trying to cram anything down anyone's throat. It's just like, you need to take me for who I am. And I do think we have a beautiful thing going which is why I loved the opening so much because we see that. We see how grounded he is and how grounded she is. And they meet at Cambridge mm-hmm. and we're looking back, it's 1992. And there's this real sense of, I need for you to understand where we start because starting is so important. Your beginning is, yeah. is the foundation to which all relationships subsequently after that are built off of. So I would really love for you to talk through why this particular moment in time, this relationship starting, was so important for readers to be a part of. I'm actually really proud of the opening. I think it's one of the bits of the novel that I'm most proud of. But even though I got the idea for it almost completely by accident, I was going to a poetry reading with a friend and I was, for once in my life, I'm never early for anything social. Work, I will be on time. But if it's not work, I can 
pretty much guarantee that I'll be five or ten minutes late. And for once in my life, I was actually early. So I was waiting for a friend and I was waiting, I think, in a cafe and there were some postcards laid out postcards that were nothing to do with the bible nothing to do with religion they were sort of advertising you know events that were going on and but somebody just one of their staff just put a postcard down on the table and then i thought oh and then the whole thing basically just came from that idea the whole thing it was so bizarre is i've never really had anything like that before i basically just sat down for i think it maybe took somewhere between two and three hours and I just it all just kind of came out of me and you know I thought about it a lot and there's a lot of silence and thinking and is this right and but then it just kind of came out in pretty much in one draft and I'm so happy with that because as you say I think it's a really important sort of tone setter for the book about the kind of thing that we're going to deal with because yes you know we're talking about God and heaven and hell and belief and faith and questions and you know big things but at the same time it's little things like Joni's like rubbish love life that she's having yeah. at university and the fact that she really likes getting on her mother's nerves by dating kind of men that she thinks her mum won't like and the fact that Morris is having these kind of really quite admin meetings and you know yes it's the church and it's God and it's heaven and hell but also it's kind of little kind of resentments that you might have with your colleague and um, the kind of arguments that make you know everybody's been through to you know a kind yeah. of a work that lasts ages and you think can we <laughs> yeah. not pick something and oh my goodness are we still talking about this and I really love that kind of mix of I guess the mundanity and also the profundity of the things that they're, they're grappling with I really wanted to introduce that this is a novel that is going to combine those those two things the big and the small I just love farce I did some acting at university I studied English but I did a bit of acting and I loved being a kind of checkoff and kind of political farces where everything seems to be so chaotic and then just at the last moment things kind of come together in this really beautifully harmonious way mm. and that is exactly the kind of scene that I love most to write so yeah that was why I guess that's the the energy and the, the drive behind that the opening prologue you know there were so many lines in the book that I loved I messaged oh, you when you. I was reading it and I, <laughs> yeah. I, I told you that I found you randomly beautiful which is in your <laughs> book which is true and um I love this line this is actually in the beginning so I'm going to read it Joni's heart went out to him, the brave man who'd asked for sprinkles. And you have to read the book to understand what I'm talking about. But basically, we're talking about Jonathan. And um, I was just wondering, when you were writing your book, did these characters' voices, were any of them more distinct than others? Because I don't know about you, but when you're writing... Sometimes your characters' voices demand to come out, that your characters are like, you better let me out or I'm going to go crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I was just wondering, maybe not necessarily your main characters, but did any of your characters really just come through so clearly right away? Or did this kind of come with time? That's a really interesting question. Two things came really clearly. A lot of the novel came with time, but I think two things came really clearly. The narrator's voice came to me clearly. It took a while for me to kind of find my groove I guess my sort of style and that took you know redraft after redraft and I was thinking do I want this to be a funny novel do I want this to be a kind of a serious lofty literary tone novel and then I kind of found my way in somewhere in between those two things and once I realized that that was what I wanted to do there's that really lovely quotation I, th I think it's Dolly Parton who said you have to find out who you are and do it on purpose and I think that really applies to writing a million brownie points for citing Dolly Parton in this podcast <laughs> episode she I absolutely adore her so continue <laughs> please yes very good <laughs> yeah I really love that I love that idea I think you know so much of writing is accidental and you know it's like you're almost like you're in a laboratory and you're you accidentally knock over two test tubes and what happens if these two chemicals mix will it be this or will it be that completely different element and 
yeah the, the rateist voice i think for me once i realized w- what i was trying to do on purpose mm-hmm. i got a really tight hold of that and that felt so wonderful i think a lot of the individual characters though those really came with time what was easier i think was the conversations between them the conversations between sort of nano and joni especially i had to kind of redraft and redraft and redraft but i think on the sort of like third draft or fourth i thought oh this is exactly what I want their relationship to be like. And this yeah. is exactly what I wanted to develop. And then once I got a sense of what I want the dynamic to be between them, I could then think, okay, now I know what they want to be, what I want them to be like individually. I kind of imagine them together first. I don't know if that's kind of unusual or, or weird, but it was easier for me to think what kind of relationship I wanted them to have before I could think of them as individuals. Yeah. As I can attest, no two relationships between daughters and mothers are the same. But I think as well, they kind of like Morris and Joni, they are a good match for each other. And, yeah. and and I actually messaged you about this as well. I really feel that Nina was not her own age. Like she was, just, <laughs> I'll tell you at 16, 17, 18, I was not as confident as she was. <laughs> I really found her to be such a great character. And I told you, I was just cheering her on from the start yeah. because I just wanted Nena to to succeed because she deserved it and she had so many opportunities to kind of just sit back and see what happens but she really went after what she mm. wanted and made no apologies for the fact that she was curious and she was feeling a little bit like half of her was missing and mm. it, the fact that you have to be whole or you have to find another person to be whole. And that's true of like platonic relationships and relationships with your parents and, and romantic relationships as well. You don't necessarily need another person to be whole, but that feeling that you you haven't had the chance to really know that other side of you. Yeah. I think as a reader, you just can't help but think, like we said at the beginning, back to that age where it was like, oh my gosh, what was I grappling through? <laughs> what was I worried about? What was I stressed about you? You know, just like you and just like Nena, I was, I've been anxious since I came out of the womb. Like, honestly, I just, (laughs) honestly, I just, I I worry incessantly. And at the same time, it is a very exciting time because you're exploring so many different aspects of of what you are and who you're going to become. And I was just wondering if there was one particular moment in the book that really caused you to reflect and think back in terms of, oh, if I could be at this age again, what would I possibly like, you know, that, that famous phrase, if I knew then what I know now, yeah. would you, would you, <laughs> would you want to kind of take this, this book as a guide and kind of go back and maybe change things? That's so interesting. I try to think more about the future. I think I'm fascinated by the past, but, and I hope that the spirit of this book is one of sort of forward thinking and redemption and healing and moving forward and upwards because that's all you can really do. That's all you can really change. And I've been thinking about this book, even since I, the manuscript is finished and finalised and handed in, you know, sent off to the printers. I keep thinking about some of the themes. And I think that what, you know, that there are, there are characters who are, you know, Nana is so wonderful in so many ways and she's so smart and she's so brave and she's so determined. And I absolutely adore that about her. And her mother is also, you know, yes, Joni, you know, she, she's not perfect, but she's also done some great stuff. She's raised an incredible daughter by herself under tremendously difficult circumstances and yeah. and yes that you know they're wonderful people and they do make mistakes but I think that what I find about the characters is that when they're at their most unkind or ungenerous or ignorant when they're doing those things it's when they're moving forward or when they feel like they're not moving forward you know so if Joni is 
anxious, it's generally sort of being um, cagey with Nana about who her father is and what happened between the two of them. It's because she's scared of Nana moving on and leaving her behind. Yeah, of course. And, you know, if Nana is being impatient with her mother and if Nana is being unfair, perhaps, or ungenerous, it's because she doesn't understand where her mother's coming from and that's holding her back. And these are things, you know, every relationship has its, whether it's platonic or romantic or of any kind of relationship, every relationship has its kind of, you you can't always understand somebody completely, you know, you can't do a mind meld, you have to listen to someone's point of view and try and get your words across, which is hard. So, yeah, I think that I want the story, even when the characters can't always look forward and focused on the future, I wanted the story to, to do that. I wanted the story itself to kind of be, okay, but what happens next time? Or what happens in the future? Or maybe there's another chance, or maybe we can think about what's going to happen next time, rather than the kind of the finality of the sort of the doom that maybe some of the evangelical Christians in the group thought of, this idea that there are things that you can do that will damn you to hell forever. I've never believed that. I've never thought, I've never thought that way. I think, you know, when I, I don't believe in God anymore, but when I did, when I was about Nena's age, my faith was that of sort of, second chances and forgiveness and yeah. no and it's it's really interesting as well because and we'll get on to the relationship between Joni and Nana in a minute but Joni does live vicariously a little bit through Nana because again like you said she has like been there seen it done it and she mm. feels like she has a little bit of the upper hand in terms of she knows what's good for Nana but at the same time I was kind of thinking as you were saying that when Nana is frustrated and you know kind of not understanding where her mother's coming from it's not really fair actually because she doesn't have the full story yeah. She doesn't know why Joni is very cautious around certain topics. So I don't really think that's fair, to be honest. And I just, I really wanted to understand a little bit more about this dynamic, this relationship. So it is very special. They are mother and daughter. They're really close in some ways, as I said, you know, when they go out to dinner and they, ha- you know, they have this chat. And we start to see a bit of some cracks in that relationship in terms <laughs> yeah. of not necessarily where things are wrong, but where there's room for fluidity, where there's mm. room for interpretation, where there's room for people to do different things, say different things. And especially, and you'll have to read the book to know this, but when Nana wants to go to Paris, when she wants to mm. go and study in Paris, Joni is so coming down on her, like putting doubt in her mind, like, won't you miss your boyfriend? I messaged you, I was like, what does her boyfriend have to do with anything? <laughs> she wants to go to Paris, let her go to Paris. Yeah. And I was just wondering, yeah. why do you think that we let comments, especially from people who we hold in such high regard, perhaps like our mom mm. or dad, or, or even just our best friends, why do we hold their comments so true? Why can't we just push through it and just say, nope, I'm gonna do this. Why do we let it affect us so much, do you think? I think speaking for myself, a lot of the time when if somebody says something to me that upsets me or will make me doubt myself, it's not necessarily because I agree with them, but I think it's usually because that has upset me. It's usually on some level that's connected with some sort of insecurity that I already have. And I think that is all the more true when it comes from somebody who you love and who loves you. You know, if somebody says, I'm not sure this is something that is best for you, or, you know, if I'm not sure that this is something that you'll really enjoy or get a lot out of. And I think especially as a teenager, you want to believe that you can do anything, but at the same time, you're terrified of doing anything. So when somebody kind of sort of steps on your dream in some way, somebody who's close to you, it's infuriating and it's really confusing and bewildering and it feels hurtful, even if the intention is the most benevolent intention possible. 
Especially when they confirm your insecurities. That's the exactly. worst part. When you're already thinking it in your mind and you're just like, oh my gosh. No, you're <laughs> supposed to say, no, you're wrong. You're absolutely yeah. gonna, gonna do this like 100%. Before we kind of go on to a little bit more into the book, I would love for you to read a little bit from the book. Lovely. I know you have a particular passage and this will give people a sneak peek. Awesome. So this is taken from actually towards the middle of the book where Nana and her mother own an art gallery. So this is um, a scene that we talked about. This is one of my favourite scenes. (laughs) And I really enjoyed writing this scene. This is one of the things I was talking about earlier, the fact that I love the dynamic between the two of them. and I love Exactly. And, you know, they don't have a perfect relationship. Nobody does. But there is so much joy there. I love this scene. And so the two of them in an art gallery, Nana has just started to really ask some probing and difficult questions of her mother about her heritage from her father and her father's side and this has made Joni really uncomfortable and it's causing strain in their relationship but they still love each other so much and Joni wants to sort of patch that over and reconnect so yeah I thought I'd read a bit from that. The following Saturday passers-by in the art gallery smiled on as a woman and her daughter, niece, friend, it was unclear from the difference in skin tones, sat down and quenched their thirst for artistic nourishment by drinking in some austere portraits of the aristocrats of yesteryear. They inclined their heads worshipfully to the left, worshipfully to the left, and studied hard the works before them. Regular patrons might have recognised the two, the woman in her late thirties, the girl in her mid-teens, looking intensely at a portrait of a lady who was gaily smelling a posy presented to her by a man wearing black tie and a beatific smile. If those passers-by observed that this painting did not seem to please the girl as much as the woman, they might smilingly put this difference down to a difference in ages. The girl might well grow to share her elders' appreciation of art in time. Come on, Nena, said Joni. I can't do this by myself. Nena frowned, but said nothing. Shall I get you started? No, Mum. Don't you want to? We always do this. It's no fun if you don't join in. Come on, you'll like it once we get started. Nena sighed. She didn't want to refuse outright. That would mean having to explain why she didn't want to engage in their time-honoured game of simulating interviews between a prospective employer and a subject in a painting. But to play the game as always seemed wrong somehow. Things weren't the same as always now. Things had changed. But Joni nudged her, and the idea of not playing the game seemed suddenly larger than itself. To Nana's teenage mind, everything symbolised something else, everything pointed towards some larger significance. Not playing the game, or at least not playing the game without talking about it properly, which she was not prepared to do, seemed to gesture towards loneliness, towards a more permanent separation from her mother than she was ready for. She was angry with Joni for not telling her more about her father, and for always making her ask about him instead of offering to talk, and for Joni's inexplicable, quiet, but apparent disapproval of her study of the Igbo language. But she was still her mother, and non-participation was too much, too serious. Joni nudged her again. All right, fine, I'll play, but you start. Joni scanned the frames on the wall for an inspiring piece for a moment before settling onto one to the right of her. Good morning, good morning. Thank you for sending us your application, Ms. Uh, I'm sorry, how do I pronounce your name? I don't believe you've had the pleasure of many applications from your part of the world, Ms. Jane Smith. Jane Smith? Precisely, sir. I see, I see. Goodness me, how terrifically exotic. Thank you, sir. Might I ask from which part of the world you hail? Shrewsbury. Oh, delightful, delightful. No, not really. 
well, how exciting to have someone of your background in our midst. We're terribly bland here, you see, and what with us being an all-male establishment. Yes, I read the advertisement carefully. Pale Corp has long held a certain aspirational gleam for me, as for so many young women around the world. My appreciation for your brand runs deep. Of course, I would rather be judged on the basis of my skills. Ah, indeed. Now I see that the first and foremost among your skills is, uh, stroking my hair. Indeed. Stroking my brown hair? Oh, of course. How did that escape my notice? I can't imagine. As a matter of principle, I stroke my brown hair conspicuously wheresoever I go. Observe. Marvellous, marvellous. We here at Pale Corp like a woman with that kind of ambition. Goodness me, brown hair. You'd make something of a contrast here, you know. Is that so? Absolutely. We here at Pale Corp tend to have more, well, pale hair. I see. We are, however, trying to diversify, as you will have seen from our outreach programme for women blighted with hair of the darker hue. Yes, quite daring, I thought, in today's world. Well, I hate to say it, Miss Smith, but we have faced some backlash for this outreach work from our more traditional shareholders. Oh, dear me. Very sad, very sad. But then you know what people say about women whose hair is brown or even <coughs> black as opposed to blonde. Irredeemable whores. Precisely, precisely. Heavens, we seem to have got somewhat off the beaten track, Miss Smith. Why don't we discuss some of your most recent work? I see you have a slight gap in your employment history. Two hundred years, yes. The reason being, I was being held in a private collection in Surrey. How ghastly. How on earth did you keep yourself occupied during that time? Listening to men, mostly. How enterprising. Yes, one likes to keep one's most marketable skills as sharp as one can. And that will pay handsome dividends, Miss Smith. I must say, you are a very impressive candidate. What would you say is your greatest ambition? Heavens, what a question. I think that would be to sit down. I've been standing at this mirror for centuries now, brushing my hair and holding my powder puff just so. Naturally. And what would you say is your point of greatest weakness? My wrists. Excellent, excellent. Ah, I see time is getting ahead of us. Shall we discuss your hobbies? Oh, I like to keep myself busy, you know, looking downcast, evading direct sunlight, slowly dying of consumption, that sort of thing. How very enterprising, Miss Smith. I do my best, sir. Well, I believe I've heard everything I need to hear. When can you start? I expect my darling husband to recognise my right to independent means imminently, any century now. Splendid, splendid. Well, I should look forward to welcoming you aboard. A passerby, if they stop to look, might have seen a woman and her friend, perhaps, laughing, cautiously hugging, and enjoying art a little too much. They might have seen a mother trying to make amends. They might have seen a daughter trying to forgive. Honestly, as I was reading along in my own book, I was laughing so hard. <laughs> I was smiling. I was shaking my head. I honestly think the state of the world could be summarized in those six pages. I mean, it's so perfect. It's like absolute perfection. And that starts Thank on page you. 185 in my book. I don't know if it's 185 in everyone else's book, but it's, it's the start of pa part two. So it's brilliant. Um, and that is a perfect way um, to kind of segue into my next kind of point about really delving into as Nena starts to look more into her dad's side and that culture 
She really starts to educate herself. She wants to learn the language. She really, really wants to go, you know, head first into this and really commit to it, which I really admired mm-hmm. because it, it so often it's easy, especially at that age, you know, things happen, life happens. You've got other relationships, you know, that you prioritize for whatever reason yeah. it, it can happen now. Um, but she really commits and I really love that about her. But then on the other side of the table, there's that resistance from Joni and mm-hmm. Nena doesn't understand. She doesn't, her mother won't talk about it. She doesn't understand mm-hmm. where this resistance is really coming from. It's almost like she doesn't want Nena to get hurt from the truth that she holds so close to her chest. And I would just really love for you to talk through this kind of conflict there. Yeah, I really actually enjoyed writing this bit because I think that there's so much about any sort of parent-child relationship that involves that difficulty where it's really hard for to reach proper mutual understanding. No matter what your intentions are, no matter how much you love each other, one of you has way more life experience than another. And even in this case where the two of them are born in the same place and grew up in the same country, their outlook on life, you know, their outlooks on life are quite different because of the experiences that they've had. And so I really, I, I, I think there's, a, even though their relationship is strained, I really enjoyed writing I guess the tenderness that comes from that difficulty of expression, you know, you can love somebody as much as you like, but sometimes it's, communication is really hard. It's a cliche, but it's true. Sometimes the things that you most care about are the things which are hardest for you to express clearly. And I think that's the case with Joni. I think that when she is trying to sort of almost hold Nena back, I, I wanted to get the sense that, okay, yes, if you could just get the words out and say it. If she could just explain her position, yes, things would move more smoothly and, you know, their relationship would be more harmonious. But she's only human, you know, and she has had her own experiences, which you find out about as you read through the book. And it's hard for her to express those things. And for Nena at the same time, you know, God, writing Nena was such a dream. You know, she's, she, again, she's, she's human and she's messy sometimes, but she is so brave and so determined and so smart. And I loved writing that. Yeah. But at the same time, she, she also finds it hard to express herself because she's 16 mm. and she, you know, she doesn't have that much life experience in a lot of ways. And she doesn't necessarily know how to phrase things and how to, how to ask difficult questions and have difficult conversations. Yeah. And I really enjoyed writing that sort of sense of the two of them both struggling under something and you know yes they are they they hurt each other sometimes and they 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 don't always say the right thing and and feelings get hurt but at the same time they're also hurting themselves as Mm. well because because of that inability to be able to communicate as well as they would like to I mean I I don't want to give too much away but people will will see this as the book goes on Joni has had to watch quite a few people walk away from her. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think the idea of Nena walking away from her to go to Paris, it terrifies her. And yeah. she's, she's not holding back on that. She really, and, and I think Joni is actually trying to show that by feeling this way, she actually loves her that yeah. much. Nena doesn't see it as love necessarily. She sees it as like holding me back, but actually it's her like deepest form of love is the yeah. fact that I just don't want to let you go, which is, is yeah. so hard. And and it is one of the really beautiful relationships in the book. And I very much enjoyed seeing how, well, this sounds terrible. I enjoyed seeing them struggle. <laughs> I didn't enjoy seeing them struggle, so to speak, but I enjoyed seeing the beauty and the truth and the rawness that came through yeah. with that struggle. That was just so wonderfully written. 
Um, and and I am going to slightly divert and move away from the main relationship, so to speak, to talk about Jonathan, because <laughs> am I allowed to admit this? I loved Jonathan. I loved oh, him so much. And I'm not going to say that I loved him more because I don't have to pick. I can love them all <laughs> the same, but I loved him. His relationship with Joni is so fascinating. And honestly, I felt that Joni and Jonathan's relationship had more ups and downs and was more like a roller coaster than it was between Joni and Nena because maybe because they've known each other longer, but mm. also because so much has happened and yeah. so much has changed and they've mm. just been through so much together. And even when they weren't connected, like they weren't living in the same area or they weren't kind of in that way together they never left each other's minds, which I, you know, mm. is so true of a lot of a lot of relationships. And you know, they're friends from Cambridge, so the the sprinkle guy uh, is Jonathan, <laughs> and you know, she she doesn't actually meet him in the cafe at the beginning. She mm. meets him later on, and there's just this heartbreakingly sad secret between the two of them. And honestly, when it got to, I knew something was coming, <laughs> and honestly, when it got to it, I was I was in tears because it, it's oh. just so heartbreaking. Oh. But but Joni does act like Jonathan's protector, especially as they start to see each other more. And, you know, he attends mm. that party with her. And I almost feel like she is protecting Nena in the same way. But with Jonathan, it's a little bit different. It's almost like I've wronged you in the past and I feel like I have to make up for yeah. where that that is. Um, but in doing so, she's deflecting her pain, I thought, um, and worries onto those she cares about. And I wanted to know, how did you map out the dynamic between all of your characters? Because you have that really special relationship between Nana and her mother. You have the mm. relationship between Morris and Joni. You have Joni and Jonathan. Later we have Jonathan and Silas, which, ugh, don't <laughs> get me started on him. Um, but did, it, did some of it become more central as you started writing it? Or did some people kind of not fade away, but did some people just kind of go to the background because other relationships started coming forward? Like how, how did that work? How did the central part work versus maybe a little bit in the background and vice versa? Yeah, so I think this was another case of when the relationships came through first and then the characters almost came through after that. I knew that I wanted to show the relationship between Joni and Jonathan as one of showing a different side of Joni from the one she has with her daughter. And you're right, oh my goodness, you could be these characters' therapists. You like nailed it there. <laughs> Spot on. Yeah, because Joni is that relationship that she has with Jonathan. She is she is kind of his protector in a way, but she also, that's motivated by guilt. And I think that's a large part of the ups and downs of their relationship that whatever, you know, she, yes, her intentions are perfectly kind. She wants to make up for this big secret that's in the past and she wants to make everything better. But at the same time, she she's doing that. There's a kind of an element of kind of pity there and I think it's quite difficult for that friendship to flourish the way she perhaps envisions it flourishing because that is the motivation behind it it's pity um, and that's one of the things that makes it quite difficult especially because you know you're right she tries to protect Jonathan and she tries to sort of give him advice and lead him in the right direction but he doesn't always really want to listen to her because he interprets it as someone kind of as almost her kind of um, yeah it's pity it's not kind of a, a two people coming together as friends as equals it's it's 
she sees him as kind of weak in some ways yeah. and sort of and, and needing protection and vulnerable, which of course he is. But I, I don't think he enjoys being seen that way, not by somebody who knows him as well as Joni does and who's known him for as long as she has. And yeah. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed those relationships sort of flourishing and how Jonathan kind of serves as almost not a go-between, but I think Jonathan understands Joni in a way that Nana can't. And I think he understands Nana in a way that Joni can't. He's mm-hmm. trying to figure out how different sides of himself fit together and where he belongs in life and what his identity means for him. So he understands that side of Nana, but he's also known Joni since they were both much younger. Yeah. And since before she had Nana, he understands Morris, you know, in a way that even Joni perhaps doesn't. He has that experience of being in the church with Morris and understanding his faith in a way that Joni never could share. But at the same time, as much as the, the relationships are so key, I really wanted to focus on Jonathan as isolated and lonely. I think that he's, as you say, there's this big secret in the past and he's been through so much. And I'm, I'm really interested in, again, what life is like for other people. I've always been fortunate enough to have a wonderful support network of friends around me and family. And I always think about what is it like if you don't have that what is it like if your support network is very precarious if you are always quite far down on someone's list if you can't rely on people the way you might want to mm-hmm. and I think that is true for quite a lot of queer people of color I think that's true for quite a lot of people who struggle with mental health problems in the way that Jonathan has and who struggle with self-esteem in that way I think that those things can often be symptomatic of not having maybe the best closest network of of support around you and I really wanted to make that hard to look at but also hard to look away at the same time yeah no I think that is is so important and that's one of the the themes that comes through in your book is that it's more or less looking at okay my past doesn't necessarily define me Mm. I learned quite a lot in my past and it does make up a good part of who I am today but at the same time I'm not going to look back on that necessarily and only see regret, which, you know, kind of what you and I were talking about, like, would you go back? Would you change things? Yeah. And with Jonathan, because his vulnerability is so beautiful in the book, I often found myself looking to him to see how the other characters were going to respond. He is very vulnerable, but he does find happiness with Silas, much to my disappointment, because I do not like Silas. You're very good <laughs> at creating characters that I love and very good at creating characters that I don't like. Jonathan goes with Joni to a party and meets Silas there. And oh, from the get-go, he's just so pompous and just like yeah. so sure of himself. As Silas and Jonathan start dating, as they start having this relationship, Silas is very obvious yet not obvious in how he just wants this to be a casual relationship with Jonathan. He's not in it for the long run. As that begins, and the weird things that happen with food, read the book, (laughs) uh, as that happens, I start to think that Jonathan agrees and he is the same. He just wants to be in the moment. And then as it goes forward you start to see that, no, he actually does want more and he's trying to make this relationship into something that it's not. Absolutely broke my heart. And Silas is detached. Jonathan is in it. It's all about control, especially when it comes to sex. And, you know, asking what we want for in a relationship is so difficult at times. Jonathan does go along with this relationship that he's in, but it's painfully obvious that he is hurt and he doesn't want to acknowledge it. And I was just wondering, Mm -hmm. why do you think Jonathan kind of shrugs this off in the beginning and just kind of goes with it, even when it means compromising his own happiness? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think Jonathan is 
like a lot of people in that he's experienced, you know, he's experienced some dark things. He's got this sort of dark secret that is in his past. And I think he wants to believe that everything's fine. I think quite a natural response to trauma is to tuck it away and to pretend and to sort of just move on with your life and get as far away from it as possible. And I think that's quite an understandable thing for him to do. But at the same time, like you say, it's maybe not the most honest choice that he's made because he can't just detach himself from his past. He can't just kind of detach himself from the problems that he's experienced and the things that he's gone through. And like you say, therefore, this kind of manifests in him kind of self-destructive behaviour in a way. Um, and he's and he doesn't see it at first. He doesn't see it like you say when he first meets Silas. He really falls under Silas's spell. He you know he thinks Silas is this really charismatic young man who, um, and he thinks you know all of Silas's most kind of um, frustrating and off-putting traits. He thinks they're really charming. And, they're not and I, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I really wanted to get a sense of the reader thinking, "Oh my God, leave him alone!" But also. I think we've all been kind of been bamboozled by somebody either romantically or in some other way, professionally even, or as a friend where you think, you know, you just, this sometimes, sometimes either because somebody has a magnetism or because you, for whatever reason, your judgment is clouded. Yeah. You kind of, you, I think it's quite easy sometimes, especially if you're in a position where of Jonathan, where he's, you know, he doesn't have a lot of people in his life. He doesn't have a lot of confidence in himself. He feels quite like he need, he feels quite needy, I think. And for him to be in that position, I think it's quite easy to make bad decisions when you're not at your best, when you feel scared or alone or hurt. And yeah, he sort of falls under Silas's spell. And, you know, as much as there's comedy in their relationship and as much as there's kind of farce again, I, I wanted it to be a really close look at Jonathan's words and language. So a lot of the time in... Um, narratives that we see in TV or on in films or even in literature sometimes that the queer person of colour is the sidekick and they're you know the vo- they're kind of the the side voice and you know as much as Jonathan is a secondary character I was determined when I was writing his storyline that there would be parts of the story at least where we only see his voice yeah so, um, so that's how we have the monologues and I think there's something quite lonely about that and, you know, it was quite hard to write at times as, as much as I enjoyed cracking jokes and yeah. kind of comedy scenes that he's in. It was quite hard to write, to kind of enter into the mind of someone who's so unhappy and who feels so lost was was difficult. But I'm really glad I did that. I wanted to I wanted there to be this character in literature who is hard to look away from, but who demands your attention, but who's hard to look at as well. I mean, honestly, that is just absolutely beautiful in the way that you said that and I think the intersectionality between how you identify whether that be gender how you identify sexually how you identify your life it can be so complicated and I think the exterior voices in the world today make that even more frustrating and I really Mm. loved and I, I think that's possibly why I loved Jonathan as a character and especially his storyline so much because you have brought so much truth to important themes that we absolutely need to be shouting about and having in literature today. Jonathan is absolutely not a secondary character in terms of his responsibility throughout the book. And we become Mm. so invested in that and so invested in his voice. And that's why I was saying I almost look to him most of the time to see how the other characters were going to react because, Mm. and even in scenes when he's not in the book, 
I I was thinking back like, okay, what would Jonathan say? What would Jonathan do? We haven't really talked about Morris a lot, um, which is crazy mm. because he's <laughs> he's such an important character. Mm. But going back to the flashbacks, because we don't see him in present time. We only see him in the flashbacks, which is so interesting to me. Why did we not see him in the present time? I wanted to maintain the sense of loss that we have. And I think that was another reason why I had the that prologue at the start, that sort of meet cute between Joni and Morris at the start. I wanted it to be, you know, yes, chaotic and messy, but also really beautiful and sweet and timed perfectly that they meet in this bizarre, the most bizarre of ways. And then next thing we know, it's 16 years in the future, 17 years in the future. And where is he? I wanted the reader to feel bereft of him throughout the novel. The fact, you know, I wanted the reader to be kind of on Nena's side and asking the same questions like why isn't he here isn't he he seemed great I thought they were getting along really well what shouldn't he be here is yeah. shouldn't he, they should have had this lovely life together based on you know the relationship earlier on certainly I wanted the reader to be to feel a bit bereft I wanted the reader to understand what Nena was going through in the reader's own way I wanted the reader to feel like they'd lost him as well yeah and I have to say when we're going through the flashbacks with Joni and Morris and I felt like when one of them was happy, the other one wasn't happy. And I felt like, <laughs> it, and vice versa. And yeah. I, was, I was always waiting for them just to both be so blissfully happy. And I'm not saying that they weren't at times, but it was a constant struggle because mm. as forces, they were such, like even at that age, even in college, I mean, gosh, you mm. go, you're not the same person you are at the start, at the end of college. Like you, you change in those four years. And yeah. I kept waiting for them to take each other's hand. Sadly, the change is too much. And you know, yeah. you'll, you'll see that as you read through the book. But I found a theme throughout your book that I loved and it's searching. Mm. Joni is really searching for, I think, this is how I interpreted it, what her purpose will be when Nena goes off because she knows she can't mm. delay it forever. So she's kind of searching mm. for, for what her, her relationship will be with her when she goes off to Paris or college or wherever she goes, but also with herself because mm. for the last 16 years, 16, 17 years, she's been a mother. She's been mm. this very important person in, in a young person's life. But then with Jonathan, he, he is searching for answers. He's searching for answers from his past. He's searching for answers from his present. And he does mm -hmm. look to his support network, as you said, to help him find those answers. And I was really disappointed that he didn't have a stronger support network. But I'm really hoping that if there is a sequel or if we do see Jonathan again, <laughs> he'll have just this most beautiful support network afterwards. Oh. And, then, and then with Nena she is searching for who she's going to be. And it's, yeah. I just was wondering if that was kind of something that you knew you wanted to really have everyone have as a common ground. Everyone was kind of searching for something or did I just interpret that completely wrong? And No, I think you're spot on, but I, I, I don't think I would have thought of it in those terms, but I think you are absolutely spot on. I think they are all searching for something. I guess I would have phrased it as they're all moving towards something, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not. They're all, you know, like you say, Joni's moving towards a new stage in her life. She's always going to be Nana's mother, but what does that mean when Nana doesn't need her as much anymore when she might be living in a completely different place maybe she you know and she knows she worries if nana goes to paris then where might she go after that she could go anywhere she's a perfectly capable young woman she's very smart she you know she's ambitious what's to keep her from just traveling on and on and on what's to keep her from 
moving away forever. Um, you know, and as you say, Jonathan is searching for a sense of security and a sense of warmth and home that he's never really had because he is so wracked with a kind of a civil war within himself. You know, his faith and his sexuality and his self-esteem are all in there and it doesn't quite work for him. It's not making him happy, but he can't quite reconcile them. Or And Nena, he, she doesn't understand her own family. She doesn't, there's this big piece of her that she doesn't get. And Morris at the same time, as much as he has this strong faith and as much as he is a very intelligent man, you know, he is very decided in a lot of ways. He's also really confused. You know, there are parts of his faith that don't make sense to him. There are parts of living in England as a Nigerian immigrant that don't make sense to him and that he doesn't like. And he's torn between two countries in a real way. He's torn between faith and questioning that faith in a real way. And he's torn between loving this woman and also another life that his parents might have expected him to have that doesn't include a white classics student from Cambridge. And I think that they're all moving towards something that they don't, and they don't know what it is yet. And I guess, yeah, the, the funny thing about writing it was I found myself, when I've heard people talk about characters as though, as though they're real people, in the past, I've kind of thought, that's so corny. Like, nobody really thinks like that. Your characters aren't real people. But actually, I did find myself feeling so almost paternal towards them all and kind yeah, of wanting absolutely. to move towards something positive. I guess I kind of put them through so much. I wanted them to be to move towards something positive without giving away how it ends. I wanted there to be redemption at the end. Yeah, and a beautiful ending. You know, even when we don't think that there is beauty on the horizon or you know happiness on the horizon there is truth in everything Mm. that we go through and everything that we stand for and believe in and I think that was also what was really lovely about the book is that as you said Nana I I made the joke I actually think she was older wisер for her years because, (laughs) because I certainly didn't feel that way at her age I was lost and confused and you know all the stereotypes and cliches and everything like that but I didn't at all even for one second feel that way with your book because you did such a beautiful job wrapping it all together and and honestly the truth and beauty and rawness and yeah some of the things were unfair to watch the characters go through but I just know that that's why everyone is going to love your book because it will speak to everyone and I'm I'm so thankful and grateful that you your book is coming out I'm so excited oh thank you so I want to come on to the last question which is uh, the premise for this podcast so I would love for you to imagine that your book has been placed on a shelf and it is great literature frozen in time and I would love to know which authors and books you would want alongside yours uh, Mm. to be on the shelf authors that inspire you works that inspire you I would love to know what your bookshelf would look like I love this question so much (laughs) this is such a dream question So the book that I read that made me want to write something like this and made me realise that I could was Sadie Smith's White Teeth. And I read that when I was at university and I, you know, I, oh, I just fell in love with it. I couldn't get enough. I thought it was so funny and, and wise and brilliant and fun. And I remember when I finally finished it, because I'm a slow reader, but when I finally finished it, I just, I, I remember feeling the most profound sense of gratitude. And I just thought, I'm so grateful that she's made me laugh and showed me, you know, these things about humanity and life. And I'd, I'd love to be, for for the private choice of Nana Maloney to be alongside something like that. And also, I loved Jane Austen. I think something like Emma, a book where 
you know, the main character, she's so imperfect. She has no idea what she's doing in life and she's trying to fix people up when she doesn't even understand who she's in love with herself. Um, and I think there's something so human and, and understandable about that kind of thinking you know life better than you do because at some point I think we all do. Um, and also John Irving. I remember I read The Fourth Hand by him when I was, I must have been about 14. Um, and I have so many books I want this. Thanks for to listening to this episode um, of Shelf Life. Hand, it's I'd so love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter of, or Instagram, you know, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Happening. Until next it's time, happy reading. Um, he goes to cover a story in a zoo and he gets his hand bitten off by a lion. And this leads him on the journey through life that takes him to the most unpredictable places and he meets people that he never thought he'd meet. And it's a wonderful story that goes from the most ridiculous, most um, unlikely thing to towards something really beautiful and perfect and, and right. Um, and I guess the final book would be um, Arundhati Roy's The God of Small Things, which is so wonderful in that it really plums the worst depths of humanity. You know, some of the people in that book do terrible things um, for no good reason to other people. Um, but at the same time, there flourishes love and hope and however fragile these things are, they exist and there's a dignity given to them. And without giving away the, the, the novel, the, the, the narrative gives a permanence to the good things that exist in spite of the bad. And I love that about the book. And so if, my, if, if by some miracle <laughs> my book could be preserved in time with those four, oh my goodness, yeah. That would be amazing. That is a phenomenal bookshelf. I'm just so pleased that I got to chat with you today. I'm so excited that your book's coming out this week. And I encourage everyone to read it, reread it, and laugh and cry and walk alongside (laughs) these amazing characters. So thank you so much. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? I'm on Twitter at Nzelu Wright. So N for Norman, N-Z-E-L-U, Wright. Um, I'm on Instagram with the same handle. And my website is nzelu.org. Um, so yeah, you can contact me through any of those three uh, channels. Excellent. And I'm sure you're going to be very busy this week and here and after. So thank you so much for being here. I absolutely loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading.